welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. Well, it's raining outside, and um, it's another sort of gray and gloomy day into night here. Um, but I could not be more pleased with what you're about to hear. First and foremost, um, let me start out by saying go to nowplayingnetwork.net. That's my podcast network, by the way. Um, wow. You have Vinyl Emergency interviewing a DJ from Chicago's own WXRT, Ryan Arnold. Uh, that's another great episode from Jim Hankey and Vinyl Emergency. Movie Madness, holy cow. Um, Eric talks with one of the most knowledgeable film critics out there, Sergio Mims. And you will definitely remember that name from the Stanley Donan episode and Vincent Minnelli, possibly another that's escaping me, but (laughs) Sergio is uh, a wealth of knowledge as you probably all know. So check out episode 11 of movie madness and Bill Ackerman keeps knocking it out of the park with his interviews over at uh, supporting characters. His latest is with Travis Crawford um, and the latest Directors Club, as you probably have already heard, is uh, with Eric's Antoine and M. Night Shyamalan. So these are wonderful, wonderful podcasts that I hope you'll support, subscribe to, and leave a review on iTunes and all that jazz. I sure hope you enjoyed uh, the last Pop Culture Club Extravaganza, in which I interviewed the director of Green Room and Blue Ruin, Jeremy Saulnier, and the director of Once and Sing Street, John Carney. I was really happy with those, even though they're a little bit shorter. They were booked directly through publicists, so that's why they were short and sweet. But it was a joy talking with each of them, since I am a fan of pretty much all their work. And, well, the same holds true for the guest of this episode. I I know it maybe gets confusing between the Pop Culture Feed and Director's Club and a bonus episode, but Pop Culture Club is more of a smorgasbord, a pinata, a buffet, a cornucopia of different interviews and discussions. Um, sort of mishmashed sometimes. Uh, other times there are, there are just lone interviews. But I, I felt it was important to include this episode in the Directors Club feed, because after all, Keith is a director. Um, and the the Pop Culture Club feed isn't quite what Directors Club, um, the listenership that Directors Club has. And I felt like, oh my goodness, I want all film fans that like the show to hear this particular discussion. My, my sincerity is is genuine when I say, like, um, I'm doing interviews with people I consider to be heroes, and I know that's a long list at this point, but I mean it. When it comes to Keith, he was somebody I I really respected as an actor early on, you know, going all the way back to my love of Christine. But I think it was in the mid-90s when I worked at a video store called Box Office Video in Highland, Indiana, and I came upon a Midnight Clear. I watched it, liked it quite a bit. I, I remember renting it mainly because of the cast and not realizing who the director was until after I watched it. And then we had this like huge glossary that was the size of a dictionary at the video store counter. And I noticed his other credits included 
you know, back to school and Christine, the legend of Billie Jean. <laughs> um, you know, I noticed these other credits and it immediately, you know, the, the, the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, that's the same Keith Gordon. And that w- it just made me so happy that he directed this, you know, low budget independent feature with a great ensemble of young actors. And, you know, it was, a, it was an unconventional war film that, you know, I th- and maybe it, you look at it now and you kind of go, well, there are certainly war films on a technical level that may be superior to some degree, but I really feel Midnight Clear is kind of like this low-key, intimate character study that is very effective. Just rewatching it recently, I was like, yeah, this this holds up. I mean, the majority, if not all, of Keith Gordon's films hold up. His adaptations include The Chocolate War and Mother Night. And, you know, to some degree they're straightforward, but they're peppered with these surreal touches that I I think speak to his love of um, Nicholas Rogue and Scorsese and Kubrick, and obviously the list goes on and on. Uh, And I also remember checking out The Singing Detective in relatively empty Chicago cinema simply because his name was attached. And... We didn't get to that one in the conversation, unfortunately, but it's the one I went back to and found to be interesting, if not mostly a curiosity, at least on my part. It's something I probably will go back to, again, uh, simply due to the fact that maybe I watched it when I wasn't in the right frame of mind or I was tired, and my love of pennies from heaven has kind of gone through the roof, having watched that for the first time this year. But pretty much all of Keith's films are special to me due to when I saw them, Um I talk briefly in, during the introduction when, when, that you're about to hear. My love of Christine was just kind of crazy. Uh, I watched it over and over and over again. You know, it was like another sort of Ghostbusters or Cloak and Dagger or Last Starfighter where my dad and I sort of bonded over it, and it became one of those movies that if I felt compelled or I was bored, I would put it on and just had to watch it from beginning to end. So most recently... I've gotten hooked on some of these amazing television shows. And as I'm watching them, I always look at the director credit, and lately, popping up, is Keith Gordon's name. The pilot to Rectify, which... Rectify, if you haven't seen the show, I'm pretty sure the first season's on Netflix. It's grown into one of my favorite shows of all time. Because it feels cinematic on a character level. And that pilot, which Keith directed felt like it came from that the same person who made something like Waking the Dead, since it was this really strong character study full of tremendous acting and um, internal conflict, which is obviously what draws us into a drama, is uh, a character's sense of conflict and how is it going to be resolved. So Rectify is one of those perfect shows that I don't know. I, I I feel like it flies under the radar because maybe it is so low key and there isn't these gigantic moments or even these visual flourishes. But I felt like Keith Gordon is kind of the the perfect um, crafts craftsman for a show like that. So it made complete sense to me that he uh, directed that pilot and he directed episodes of Homeland, Fargo, The Leftovers, and you're gonna hear all about all about that in a second. Just Please, I implore you to check out Keith's work if you already haven't. Um, it's not all easy to track down, 
particularly Static, which he just co-wrote, but I, I still think is a really eerie and weird and quirky and strange and just an all-encompassingly odd experience that really did feel like um, a product of its time that's just also thematically rich. But that's that one's I think you can only get on VHS. But okay, so sorry about all the rambling. I think it's just my excitement level, even after just doing this interview, is still there, as you probably can tell. Just please check out Keith Gordon's films as a director. Go back, watch his stellar performance in Christine, because I do think it's great. I forgot to tell him that that Harlem Nocturne moment of him saying, Okay, show me was just uh that is a that is just a great sequence. It's one of my favorite sequences in all of Carpenter's films because of how he seamlessly infused his own score into Harlem Nocturne in that moment and um, the effects there are great. Anyway, I'm just rambling. So Keith took out some time out of a very busy schedule to Skype with me today, and I really have to thank Brian Flaherty of uh, the New Hollywood Podcast for connecting us. He was a fan of my show and contacted me over Twitter, which was really cool. And I listened to some of his episodes, and I listened to his interview with Keith. I wrote to him. You know, I didn't even say, like, oh, it'd be so gr- you know, it would be so great if you could send me Keith's information or whatever. Brian went out of his way to forward my podcast to Keith. Never did I expect a response two days later from Keith Gordon saying, Hey, I checked out the Kubrick episode, man, and I dug in a lot. And now here we are with a very special bonus episode in which I talk about the career of the one and only Keith Gordon. And I'm sure he'll be on again as a guest in the future. This is really one of my favorite interviews to date. Can't thank you enough for listening. Now here's my conversation with Keith Gordon. have with me today a very special guest. Uh, someone who is very near and dear to me, particularly during my formative years as a child, and I'll briefly tell you why. Um, when I was around seven years old, my dad had this uh, unusual obsession with a film. He, I believe he caught on cable and then recorded it onto a blank VHS tape. He had this love of George Thorogood and old cars. So it was safe to say that John Carpenter's Christine was one of the most watched films in the mid-80s for for both me and my dad. Uh, In fact, my dad wanted me to see it so badly, he went out of his way to edit out all the explicit language and made a PG-13 version that was a little bit more suitable for me to watch at a young age. So I then wore out the VHS copy... It kickstarted a love of both Stephen King and John Carpenter, and little did I know at the time that today's guest would also go on to be one of my favorite directors of wonderfully compelling character studies that uh, 
sort of transition subtly into psychological dramas that I've I personally recommended to almost anyone at the video store I worked at, at the time in the late '90s. I binged on four of his films in a row and found them all to have distinctive pleasures, particularly the performances, which clearly goes to show to that my guest today is a true actor's director and someone whose name I'm always excited to see directing lots of, lots of great TV shows to this day, including Fargo, The Leftovers, Masters of Sex, and he directed the pilot to a personal favorite show of mine, Rectify. It is an honor to be talking today with the one and only Keith Gordon. Okay, after that intro, I don't, I don't really <laughs> want to talk because I'm gonna really come off never. I can never say I can never be as smart and good as what you just sounded. Oh, stop! <laughs> that was really nice. Thank you. Oh and, no, thank you for all that you've done. I mean, going all the way back, you know. Um, Christine was a very <laughs> sort of uh, seminal film for me growing up as a kid. I, as a real, that, I love that story because it's you know it, it, it it's a really personal thing. It's not just the movie. It's like it's a it's a part of your life history. So that's very cool. Well, I guess it's kind of fitting too to transition because I believe that uh, Kubrick kick started your love of cinema when your dad took you to see. 2001 in the theater was that the first experience that made you fall in love with movies yes that was that was one of those you know it, uh, usually in life you don't know when you're having a life-changing experience right you know it later but that was a life-changing experience i was seven years old when the film opened in 1968 and my dad who thought he was just taking me to some science fiction movie i don't think he had any idea that he was taking me to an incredibly dense existentialist you know philosophical drama I think he was taking me something with rocket ships in it, uh, and of course at seven, I I I couldn't understand the movie. Sure, but I was obsessed with the fact that I couldn't understand the movie. I I had never had that experience before, where I I just was driven to try to understand it, and I, I made him take me back again and again, and 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 you know I I read the the novelization when when Arthur C. Clarke's book came out, and and it started a love for me that's never gone away of film as a medium and film particularly as a medium when it asks questions and when it makes you think and makes you ponder things um that to me is a really kind of peak experience in life as a filmmaker or as a film goer uh i love things you know that that make me have to think about the whys of things and uh that started all of it uh you know before that i had i had seen you know the things that any seven-year-old kid sees i'd seen some you know animated Japanese TV shows and, you know, some kids' movies and Mary Poppins and, you know, but, but that, that exposure to 2001 was like, okay, this is something different. Um, it also meant that I, I saw the fabled 19 minutes of, of edited footage because I saw it opening weekend. I, I <laughs> wish I could say my memory was so great that I could tell you exactly what it was. I mean, I've read about it since, so I know intellectually, but, but um, I am one of the few people who actually saw that, those minutes of film. Um, oh, wow. Again, at the time, I didn't realize I was seeing something that would be so important. But uh, in terms of film history, but uh, but there, you know, Kubrick had that insane ability to go back and re-edit movies after they open. Uh, very few people have ever been in that position of power. But he did it with The Shining. He did it with 2001, where he actually went back and made snips and changes after their initial public uh, screenings. Which is just you know, the idea that somebody would let you do that is just speaks to that the. The regard with which he was considered at that time. Yeah, and a lot of director's cuts 
seem to be prevalent, especially with a with a director like Ridley Scott. He he tends to put out his movies time and time again. I mean, that, that, I don't know if that started with something like Blade Runner, but he continues to do that. Just recut his stuff. Um, well, and now with video, of course, it's a very different thing because yeah. you're, not, you're not talking about the kind of massive expense that would be involved with with re-releasing something in the theaters in the middle of its initial run and. Um, you know, videos allowed that, and and, and I've, I, you know, there's really great arguments about why that's a good thing and why it's not so good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's a great thing in if a director is not able to put out the film that they are most passionate about, and if there are changes forced on you that you believe are hurting the movie. I think it's a great thing that now at least you can you get a director's cut out in the world, and realistically, most movies, more, more people see movies on on disc or on uh, streaming than they do in the theaters now. So the idea that you can get a film version, the version of the film that you wanted is very exciting. I think the endless tinkering is a more complicated issue. I mean, you know, everybody's anger and frustration with George Lucas and the early Star Wars movies and, and, and you know, some of Michael Mann's endless recutting and where you feel like you're not moving this forward, you're maybe moving it sideways or backwards. <laughs> or, I, I, as a film fan, I have very mixed feelings about that. Because I do think at a certain point, You'll never be done. You can always tinker with something, but but don't you want to have a definitive version? Um, yeah, maybe not. I've never I've never been in that luxurious position where somebody would let me just keep screwing around with something. So maybe if somebody said, "Yeah, sure, you're important. Go ahead," I would. But uh, but I like to think that you kind of finally put something down and go, "This is the film I wanted to make." And even if ten years from now I look at it and I've changed and I might have made it differently, that it reflected me accurately at that moment, and that's what's important. You know, speaking of clever editing, working with De Palma must have been an experience, and he's he's a guy who loves to be playful when it comes to the final film and doing all sorts of interesting cuts and uh, camera trickery of sorts. But just being playful with the camera, I guess. Well, so, you know, he was a very. I mean, it's funny because he has he has a bit of and maybe earned. I, I don't know. I mean, he's a bit of a dour reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always found him very playful. I really enjoyed working with Brian, and 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 I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, we did two films together when I was acting, and and um, I learned a great deal. You know, he he was a teacher as well as a filmmaker, and you know, if you if you were serious about learning about film, he was happy to talk about it and talk about how he did what he did or why he did what he did. Um, so it was pretty exciting for somebody like me who who did aspire to direct my own movies, and and. Uh, yeah, he would. He, there was much more um, playfulness, even in the even as an actor, than you'd think. Um, hmm. You know, for all of his reputation as a Hitchcockian director and somebody who was very, you know, controlling. Controlling. He he wasn't. Uh, certainly, of the actors, uh, he. I, I mean, and I was a kid. I mean, it wasn't like I. I mean, I wasn't somebody coming in with some huge body of work, and but he gave me a great deal of freedom in terms of what I would bring into a scene, and and. And one of the things he did that I've tried to stay to, to do myself to this day as a director is, you know, if he got a print that he liked, he wouldn't just keep doing it the same way. I mean, he was he was the first director I worked with to say, we've got the angry version or the funny version or the, you know, let's try one that's a little more or this way, a little bit more that way. And um, that was tremendously freeing because as an actor in, in film, you're very, you know, you're very vulnerable because you know that somebody's going to take that and cut it together and you're not going to control which pieces they are. And, and there are always so many ways to do a scene. And so you kind of want to give it your, your best, but, but you also know that there may be a lot of choices that happen that make the scene play a little differently than you think it's going to. 
it's not like a play where you're rehearsing it every day for four weeks and you're you're discovering it all together inside out. So so as a film actor to get to try different versions of the scene and different depths and different colorations is very freeing and very exciting. Um, I mean, you have to trust the talent of the filmmaker that they'll pick the best stuff, but it gives you at least you don't have to go. Oh, I wish I had. Tr- I wish I had seen what would happen if I got really angry. Oh, I wish I'd seen what would happen if I had held everything inside because. The, those kind of directors will let you do all that and try it all and then hopefully the best thing will surface out of it um, and that's something I try to do to this day it, it's hard I've been doing much more TV than features lately and TV the pace is so fast you don't get to do it as much as I'd like mm. but there you know when I'm working with a good actor I'll, I, if, if unless there's a desperate reason not to I'll always try to say listen let's just do one more and just do whatever your heart tells you do whatever whatever the idea was that you were scared to try just try it uh, we, won't, we won't print it if, if it's bad um, and, and I think that that makes it more fun for the actor too to know that they're going to have that chance. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's good not to be so restrictive and confined to where you know, a director is, is so controlling to say that it has to be this way and this way only, and you have to do it the way I intended. It's good to have freedom with the part, and it sounds like the Palma did that. Um, and while working with the Palma you became friends with another Kubrick enthusiast that uh, I'd have to bring up here because I'd, lo- I'd love to talk really quickly sure. about a fascinating film called Static that you collaborated with Mark Romanek. Mm-hmm. It's a hard film to find, but I think it's well worth the effort since it has this sort of Lynchian quality to it, especially with the offbeat characters. Um, and I-, I guess around that time you wanted to branch out beyond working as an actor and contribute even more to the storytelling process. So how did this story sort of come into fruition? Because I, I happen to be a big fan. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm actually very fond of the movie, and I'm, I'm sad because Mark isn't. Um, you yeah. know, very publicly disowned it, and it's why it's so hard to find. I mean, people have wanted to put it out on, on DVD and wanted, and Mark's always blocked it because he doesn't think it represents his best work, and it, it, it doesn't represent his best work. He was a kid, which is what he always says about it, but he was a very talented kid. I mean, he, yeah. wasn't, he wasn't a child. He was like, whatever, 26, 27 years old. He was very talented. And I think, and it's kind of what I was talking about before, about yes, you change the director, you mature, you look back and go, oh, I do things differently now. But I, I don't quite get the thing of, so I'm going to hide what I did then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the film was very well received. We had a lot of really good reviews, not, univer- not universally good reviews, but what gets universally good reviews. But we did, it did extremely well in, in, in London and played for like months in London and Got a you know, great review from Sheila Benson from a film festival in at the New York at the LA Times, and it, it was you know, and it, it was basically what happened was Mark and I worked together on Home Movies, which was a film that Brian De Palma made and sort of did as a laboratory experiment to teach young filmmakers about filmmaking. So that almost the entire crew were non-professionals; they were all students of his from Sarah Lawrence University. Um, um, uh, Mark was not a student at Sarah Lawrence, but he had worked as a PA on The Fury. And he asked right. Brian if he could come and work on home movies because he'd heard about this kind of wonderful experiment where Brian was going to make like a half a million dollar independent feature with a crew of students to kind of teach them, here's how you make an independent feature. So um, Mark came on and became the, I guess, second AD. Um, and he and I found that we had this mutual love of Kubrick and mutual love of Monty Python and, you know, just shared a lot of, of tastes and, and, and sort of enjoyed hanging out. So we started talking about, oh, it'd be great to do something together, and he wanted to make his first feature. He'd made some award-winning shorts as a, as a young filmmaker. Um, 
And so we started saying, well, let's try to find something. And he had an idea for a story, but it was just a germ of something. It was like a few key images. It was a guy in the desert working in a place that makes crucifixes and collecting all the ones that came out wrong off an assembly line. Um, and then a, a model driving through the desert in a, in a VW thing. And those were kind of the things that he had to start with. And, um, and we just started throwing ideas around and, and writing scenes. And I would write something and he'd write something. And we'd have we had 8,000 takeout Chinese lunches where we just <laughs> talk about stuff. And uh, we spent about a year writing the script. And, and then it took about another year of trying to get the financing, which at the time seemed just like, oh, my God, how long is this going to take and how hard it's going to be? And, of course, now when I'm into my 15th year on certain things, you know, it's like we were so lucky we had no idea. Um, but we did get to make the film, and it was, I thought, an amazing experience. I thought he did a great job as a director. Um, it was really fun. I, I, I was a co-producer, and I co-wrote the script with Mark, and I played the lead. And, I, you know, really enjoyed it. It was, it was so much fun to have a bigger say in what I was doing and a bigger part of the creative process. And, and as somebody who was first excited by filmmaking before I was excited by acting, it was getting to come back full circle to what I wanted to be doing. Uh, which again, look, my life has been incredibly lucky. I mean, a lot of people, well, I'd be like, want to direct and most people don't get to, and I got to, so I'm, I feel very grateful for that and very lucky for that. Um, and so static was an important step on that, on that journey. And, and, and I really like the film and yeah, it's, if people are, are film fanatics enough, they can probably track it down on VHS. And I think there's like a pirated version that keeps showing up on Amazon, which yeah. I'm, I think makes Mike Mark crazy, but I, I'm fine with it because it's like, well, if it's the only way people can see it, I mean, the quality isn't great. It's basically somebody took a VHS tape and stuck it on a DVD. Right. But it's still, it's still, you know, I think he did a really good job and made a very cool Lynchian, odd, experimental, but very funny and human movie. Um, you know, Mark's yet another director who I think people think of as this, you know, te technologically amazing guy and, and, you know, incredibly good with, with that side of filmmaking. And yet if you look at what he's done, his stuff shows tremendous heart, whether it's one hour photo and, and the complexity of the character that Robin Williams played or, or never let me go oh, or yeah. even things like the, the Johnny cash video for hurt, you know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. It makes you cry. Yeah. Uh, that's still, that's my favorite music video ever. Hands well, down. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I can't think of one I like better. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, I mean, it's, I mean, how many music videos make you want to weep? And so it's right. funny. He has this rep a little bit like Brian De Palma, although not in the same not in the same exact universe of it. But but that same idea of somebody who's seen as a technocrat, and yet it's not at all who they really are. Uh, you know, Mark's a tremendously humanistic director. Oh, he I just agree. To be technically brilliant, and so everybody kind of latches onto that. And even the opening of Static sort of announces his uh, ability to integrate music visually. I mean, obviously it opens at a concert, but. I just think, you know, I start, I became familiar with him as a music video director because of, you know, the Nine Inch Nails Closer video and all, all sorts of things that I just, I couldn't wait for him to do a feature and then realizing, wait a minute, he already did. <laughs> and that was, and it was great to see your involvement with it. And it was just, yeah, it just felt like a, a really good, you know, stepping stone for the both of you at the time. Yeah, I'm was. glad it exists out there. It was an amazing, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing lesson. Yeah. Um, and and it, yes, it, it launched my career as a filmmaker because people did respond to it well enough that I was able to find people saying, okay, we will, based on the fact that we really like this so much, we will take a chance and let you make a film as a director. 
So it was hugely important for me, and and I'm still quite proud of it. I, again, I, I've I've given up on trying to convince Mark. I've, I've a few times people have approached me and said, you know, we our company would like to put this out on DVD, or I, and he's just been completely a brick wall about it. And you know, I, and as the filmmaker and as the auteur, it's his call, and I'm gonna sure. you know, I'm gonna respect it. But I am saddened by it because I think he did some some really great stuff, and and I think in the same way anybody's first film is gonna have rough edges. It's sort of, I feel like, but who cares? I mean, it's, you know, it's got rough edges, but it's also got some really good things about it. But again, you know, that's, everybody's so different in how they view their own work. Yeah, so that success sort of led to your own directorial debut with uh, an ab- adaptation of a highly acclaimed novel, which obviously you sort of uh, went on to do many times. But with The Chocolate War, I, I'm, I'm such a tremendous fan of this movie. I mean, particularly the soundtrack and just the idea of creating a you know sort of socio-political commentary set in the world of a private school it's it's almost similar to what Alexander Payne did years later with election just balancing the the dark cam- the, the dark comedy with pathos and stuff um, well that's a film I love so I don't mind the comparison <laughs> I think I think Alexander's a wonderful filmmaker and I yeah. really like election a lot and then on the other direction you know a film that certainly influenced me when I was young was if Lindsay Anderson's film oh right so yeah that certainly you know that that absolutely had an effect on me in terms of making Chocolate War. You know, in that he had also set something in a, in, a, in a boys' school, and 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 it had a kind of surrealist edge, and it was funny but dark. And, and the films aren't that similar, but it was definitely an inspiration. Um, and that's a film I still love. Um, so yes, there is a lineage of of taking that that adolescent world and exploring the implied darkness of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I always think those films are interesting. I mean, yeah, adolescent is is something we all go through. We all have those those that that period of our life where things are big, and, and you're really coming to terms with big issues. It's it's not, you know, part of it's that yes, it seems big because you're young, but uh, it's also a huge time in your life. You're forming who you are morally. You're forming who you are sexually. You're forming how you see the world. You're, I mean, it's this very very dramatic period, and and I think film can capture that bigger than life insane, slightly surreal quality of that time in one's life, and yet still do it with some subtlety. It's hard to do it in, in, in some mediums well, but I think film does, can, can capture that almost dreamlike quality of that period where, where the emotions are so big, the hurts are so deep, the, when you love, you love so passionately. When you, you know, it's, it's, um, and so I've, I've always liked films about youth and about adolescence. Um, you know, I mean, not, not just adolescence, but, you know, I think Lord of the Flies. I mean, things that just capture the darkness of childhood and the complexity of growing up. Um, we tend as adults to dismiss it and, and treat it like it's cute or like it's – but it is what forms who we are. And it's what forms all the triumphs and, tri- and, and tragedies that we, that we live through 30 and 40 years later. Um, and I like films that take that seriously. I've always been really interested in that as a viewer. Yeah, me too, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of just label that adolescent period as like just a phase, but it really determines like your emotional regulation and how you adapt to certain situations. And I think that Chocolate War sort of captures that feeling. I mean, so certain books are very personal to a lot of people, and this is definitely one of them. I want to get to the ending. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> Do you recall the light bulb over your head moment that made you say, I want to put my own stamp on the way this story concludes as opposed to adhering 
exactly to what was written on the page for the ending. Well, it's funny because my first draft of the script did adhere exactly to the, to the story and exactly the, to, the, to the book. And it was my, my producer my, and financier, Jonathan Crane, who, um, who said something I thought that, really, that was hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. Said, you know, there, he said, it works well in a book, but on screen, it's just, he said, my fear is it's going to come off as very adolescent and nihilistic mm-hmm. uh, in, in a shallow way. He said, it's one thing that, that, again, when you're young, you may see the world through a nihilistic lens, but is that, do we really just want to make a movie that says in the end, life sucks and then you die? And that's what he was afraid, that the ending, the way it was written in the book, what it would be like if you changed it, if you, if you just did it on screen. And he said, I don't mind it being dark, but he said, isn't there something more complicated to talk about? And that led me to a lot of soul searching and realizing that, yeah, because that's, I'm not somebody who... It sort of has the point of view of life sucks and you die. I do think life is difficult and painful and cruel and has a lot of dark sides. I don't think it has great sides. And I was more interested in sort of the idea that that Jerry had played in, – in playing the game, Jerry had become part of the system. Because to me, the whole story was yeah. – what I loved about the story was it's a story about systems. It's a story about – and that could be capitalism. It could be communism. It could be – it could be really anything, any, any organization that kind of – religions have it that tell people how to live and, and, and become about perpetuating their own power rather than doing good. Um, and I find that, again, that's a subject I'm very drawn to as a person and as a, as a, as a storyteller. And the idea of the complexity of that, that, that here's somebody who tried to be the classic American rebel and ended up in being that rebel, he actually served the very thing he was trying to tear down. That to me is still very dark. But it is a more complex, bittersweet sort of darkness, um, and that idea was something that I sort of get. I thought, you know, there's that is maybe a more interesting ending than just he's destroyed and you know everything is horrible and it's like it never happened and you know which which did feel like a little shallow to me in terms of what it would feel like in, on screen without you know the endless pages of monologue inside his head that the book was able to do. Um, and so that's where I ended up was sort of was sort of make, making that twist of uh, changing what happens and you know spoiler alert you know having him having him win the big fight instead of lose it but in winning he loses anyway uh, that to me was more interesting ultimately than just having him lose uh, yeah. as an audience you have this moment of yes go get him and then you realize what am I cheering and by destroying Archie. He's really destroying the worst enemy the system has. I mean, Archie may be a dark character, but if Jerry wants to undermine the system, Archie is Archie is in a position to do far more damage than Jerry. <laughs> and I do think you see, you know, systems do that. You do see societies pit one group of oppressed against the other. I mean, America did it for years, by and still does it. You know, uh, pitting white working class against black working class. But, you know, when you, when you can sort of put people against each other, then it, it keeps them from sort of turning on the power structures that be and going, wait a minute, why are we fighting each other? We should be fighting the people that really are screwing us. But, uh, and again, I think you see that in almost every kind of social construct is that you see that, that it, it works so often turn those at the bottom of the ladder against each other. Um, and so to me, that, that was sort of where the ending ended up going for me. It was a, a place that was kind of a, a, a more sad and bittersweet and frustrating place than just a nihilistic place. Um, that said, I know there are people who you know are very who don't like that I changed the ending, and, and I respect that. Um, I don't. I, I don't think they're right or wrong because I think like your reaction to 
a film or a painting or a piece of music is really personal. And, you know, I can't really argue with somebody who says, I like the ending of the book better because the ending of the book works really well in the book. I will say, when Jonathan said to me, there's something about the end of the script that isn't, that isn't, doesn't feel powerful enough, I, I didn't think he was wrong. And if I did, I would have said, I'm not changing it. I mean, he wasn't, you know, I was lucky enough to, again, to have a financier who wasn't going to force me to do anything I didn't want to do. He essentially said, if you make this film for half a million dollars and you have a basically final cut, I'm not going to ever change things just over your objections, but I want you to at least hear what I have to say. And it was one of those awful things where when he said it, where I went, oh, I wish that wasn't making so much sense because I actually find that I'm agreeing with him, which is going to mean I have to do a lot of thinking about this. Yeah, I I definitely felt conflicted about it at first, but I mean, because I think I initially... Maybe it's just because, like, it's you know the conventional sort of moment of glory, but you know the way you're you're painting it now, it does it does have this twinge of sadness to triumphing, and I I do like that a lot. I think it's I think it's a really great read on a story that might have had more of like a almost like how David Fincher chose to end Seven with just. <laughs> uh, bad news, bummer. Right. Life, the world is a, the world sucks, and it's a dark and horrible place. Um, but yeah, no, I I think it works effectively, and obviously you know how to utilize music incredibly well. And choosing to have you know Kate Bush's running up that hill uh, during the closing credits was just a beautiful touch. I mean, you you do that throughout your, most of your films. That I think there's always a, a moment involving a song. Like Joni Mitchell's "A Case of You," that just I light up like a Christmas tree when I hear it, and just think of how it's utilized in in the story. Well, thank you. I mean, I, it's it's one of the most. First of all, you know, Mark Romanek gets some credit for that because he was one of the people who who when working with him on Static and becoming so aware of music and what it could do, but also all the filmmakers I loved, you know, Scorsese yes. and, and Kubrick and all the people I grew up on used music and used source music so beautifully that. That was always an exciting idea to me, and I found when I got in the editing room, it's one of the most enjoyable things. And, and to this day, uh, I don't know what part of the process I like more than being in an editing room and trying different pieces of music on a scene. And that incredible rush of excitement, and, and when you find that piece, and it can be a song, it can be an instrumental piece, it can be whatever it is, but when you see something that that deepens the, the moment on film, that, that brings out all the emotion, that maybe brings out layers you didn't even know were in there. Um, that's an incredibly fun and exciting process in, the, in filmmaking for me. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, on my own films, I would know what the piece of music was even before I shot it, and that would have a real influence. I mean, in Chocolate War, I knew that Yaz is in my room was going to be the opening of the, of, the, of the film, if I could possibly get the rights. <laughs> the danger of that process is unless you have unlimited funds, you can't always get what you you know, are planning around. Sure. Um, uh, but that's happened to me a few times now that I've, I've, I've gone in. You know, a, a case of you actually was something that I had been thinking about, and we ended up playing it in the rehearsal process. And it became so um, meaningful to all of us when we were rehearsing it that, that, that I knew, okay, this has to actually be in the film. I didn't write it in the script, but I always thought this, this song captures something. But after playing it with Billy and Jennifer uh, on Waking the Dead and, and having us all weep in a rehearsal room as we were doing the scene, we were sort of like, well, okay, that's maybe a sign that that has to be in the movie. Um, so it, it, you never know what's going to lead you there. And sometimes an editor has an idea. And sometimes you can't get the piece of music you want and you end up with something better. Uh, the, originally, 
uh, the first thing I tried at the end of Chocolate War was uh, David Bowie's Heroes. Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. Which I loved. And at that point, it was a little bit less of a cliche. I mean, now it's been people put it in a lot of films, but at that point, nobody had used it, that I, at least that I was aware of. Um, and it was great, and it thematically really worked, and, and it was really cool, but um, we absolutely just couldn't afford it. I mean, you know, his people just weren't interested in working with a little tiny movie that had no money at that point. Um, and that made me kind of, again, go back and rethink, well, what, what other films, pieces of music or songs do I love to say what I want this to say? And that led me to the Kate Bush piece. And, and you know, it, I now I'm really glad. I think it works better, and I think it, it, it's more correct for the film. But often, you know, often whether it's casting or music, your first choice may not be what you end up with, but that doesn't mean that that's a bad thing all the time. <laughs> well, speaking of casting... Um... What a great ensemble piece you put together in uh, in the early 90s, Midnight Clear. Uh, one of my favorite Kubrick films is Paths of Glory, and I sensed a little bit of your love for that film when um, absolutely when I saw Midnight Clear. I mean, it's, it's another anti-war film that focuses on one faction, and they're all confined sort of to one location, and it's about how good intentions can go bad in a split yep. second. So... Uh, what fueled your interest in putting this film together? Was it just, I want to have an anti-war film, or this book came into your lap and you just had to adapt it? Well, it was more the second. It was more, you know, I, I wasn't looking for an anti-war film per se. I mean, I'm an anti-war person. Sure. I mean, that speaks to my personal politics, but I wasn't, you know, I, I, most of what I've done, you know, I don't go out looking for, oh, I want to do an X kind of movie. I'll right. just eat a piece of material and be excited by it. And only later, sometimes people, people will say, oh, well, here's the, you know, like that thing that you just mentioned of good intentions gone bad, which is a big running theme for me, but it's not one I seek out. It's one that I seem to be drawn to more in retrospect. I mean, Chocolate War, again, Jerry's whole journey was he's trying to do the right thing, and it ends up completely blowing up in his face. Same could be said of Mother Night, same could be said, I mean, Waking the Dead, uh, Midnight Clear, they all have that theme, but I I can't tell you that I ever thought about that when I was picking the material. It was only usually when later someone else said to me, do you realize this? And I was like, um, well, now that you say it, I do. Um, but I think in life we're drawn to, you know, the same way we're drawn to certain kinds of people maybe as, as, as mates or lovers or whatever, or friends, we're drawn to certain kinds of material and that theme seems to draw me. Um, and the futility of war is fascinating to me. And yeah, Paths of Glory is a way, way up on my list of favorite films. And, while the films are not very similar, again, mm -hmm. just like If is not really similar to Chocolate Works in a general sort of setting and, and maybe a vibe sort of way, um, the fact that, that Kubrick sort of, had sort of made more naturalistic but not just realistic, I guess, was something that I wanted to do with Midnight Clear, which was you know, not make it like surreal in a, a kind of Bunuel way, but not just gritty realism either, that there's something larger there and spookier and almost a ghost story in war and, 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 and all the other, the, the, the melodies to the harmony of the destruction that you usually don't deal with. I felt like that story really had in it. Yeah, um, it's, it's very it's, grounded. Um, when I first read the book, I, I had mixed feelings. Uh, the book was sent to me by a producer at A&M uh, Studios, which doesn't exist anymore, but they were the, they did Birdie. They did a, a number of interesting films in that period. Oh, yeah, um, Birdie. And they had been trying to get it made for a long time as a studio movie, and I think Randa Haynes was going to direct it at one point, and Tom Cruise was actually going to be in it, and this was before Tom Cruise was yet at the zenith of where he got to later. Um, but, but anytime anybody tried to make it as a $15 million, $20 million movie, the, the uncomfortable and anti-war nature of it, the darkness of it, the sadness of it, 
Mantic got derailed. And so they came to me having, they liked Chocolate War, and they were like, we sort of think maybe we should make this movie much smaller. And I read it, and I said, I like it. Let me think about it. I was a little afraid that it might seem Hallmark Hardy or something. I, I, I don't remember what my first concerns were with it, but the more I kind of reread it, the more excited I got, and the more I found ways into it uh, and, and picked out of a 450-page book or, you know, what, what was the core of it that really spoke to me. Um, so I, I got quite excited, and then and then putting it together was was a long slog because casting took a long time, but getting the money was not easy. I mean, anti-war films are not you know it's not a commercial thing. I mean, the, the horrible futility of war is a universal theme, but it's not an easy poster. Yeah. Uh, and this was a time you know when America was getting was going through kind of gung ho sort of feeling. I mean, we actually started shooting right during the first Gulf War. Uh, I mean, basically, I think it was our first or second day of shooting was like when. The bombs started dropping, you know, in in in, in, in Iraq um, and Kuwait. So it was very weird, and and I got a lot of pressure during the making of the film to not make it an anti-war movie, which was kind of hysterical huh. because that's really all it is. Uh, but our, the financiers were like, "Well, we can't make an anti-war movie." It's like, well, I don't know what to tell you because <laughs> if it isn't that, then you're in trouble because I'm the screenwriter and director and I don't know what else it is that's really when you get down to it what it's about is the insanity of war so that was a uncomfortable ongoing battle that happened during the making of that movie was that the people putting up the money were really afraid of what the nature of the piece we were making was and and, and that can happen but it was and I understood it from their from their point of view commercially and it wasn't a, a commercial film although it actually is of all my films the one, the one that has done best not just in the theater but over the years since, but it's, um, you know, sometimes if you just make a good movie, hopefully people will be interested, even if the subject matter isn't, isn't one that's an easy, it goes down easily. Um, and the casting was, 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 you mentioned the ensemble was a very big part of it because to me, when you have this little bunch of American soldiers, must be very bright American soldiers who are in the middle of nowhere together, I knew the whole film was going to be about the interaction between those actors. So the trick became not only picking really good actors. But picking really good actors who would fit well together, uh, and that was not always the easiest thing because somebody might be give a terrific reading for one of those parts, but they'd be a little too old next to Ethan, or a little too young, or a little too, you know. It would be a there was a real process of trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle of who these six guys were as a whole that had to work more than just the individuals, and that was, I, you know, that was an interesting, interesting challenge, and we saw. So many people, and it's funny we said so many people. You know, went on to become big stars later on, and Brad Pitt came in and read, and huh. um, it was very nice. And actually, was very, very good. He was somebody that I really quite liked. Um, and that process took about a year or so, just just to put the cast together. Wow! And, and you know, and there, there was the usual things of of money. People saying, "Well, can you sh- can you shove this person in?" And me being you know brash and young and ballsy and going no. Um, you know, I'd rather not make the movie than put in somebody who's the flavor of the week who's not right for this film. Uh, you know, because I got some suggestions of people from various, you know, that were ten years too old, who were just all wrong, who never would have believed in the period. I mean, you know, were so contemporary in their energy and essence that it. it who, there were people that were suggested who didn't, you wouldn't have believed were intelligent that had that intelligence. I mean, the point of the story, and it is a true story is that the army put together this group of very, very intelligent young men with the idea that they would sort of feed off of each other. And so, you know, not every actor has that kind of native intelligence that you really can believe in. So, um, 
so that was a, it was an interesting, challenging process to put that cast together. But when I did, it was it was great, and they were really fun to work with, and 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 it it, it was very exciting to work with them all. Yeah, including you know, a number of them were actor turned directors, particularly Peter Berg. Gone well, to do Pete, a lot. Pete, Pete, yeah, Pete hadn't yet moved into directing. In fact, he was at that point, I think, just being bitten by the bug. Because I remember on the set we talked about that. He was like, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I want to do what you're doing. I want to." But he, you know, he hadn't decided yet how to get there. Um, but he already was excited by it. Uh, and then Gary Sinise already had directed. He made he had made uh, a Mice and Men. Oh right, yeah, beautiful job. In fact, what was ironic is it was Midnight Clear was Gary's first film as an actor. But it was not his first film. His first film was of Mice and Man as a director. So, uh, so he actually was a more accomplished screen director than he was actor at that point. Um, and so that was interesting. I, I like working with other directors. I mean, I've done it. You know, also as a filmmaker, I've had Jodie Foster as a producer. I've had Mel Gibson as a producer. I've had, and and I find that people are always like, well, duh, isn't that isn't that intimidating or scary or isn't it make it difficult? And I find just the opposite. I find that people who have directed generally are very empathetic to the process. Yeah, I would think so. They know what it's like to have everybody coming at you, you know, with ten thousand things at once, and they, you know, I actually, and they think like directors. So their, their notes and their observations tend to be more likely to be very valuable, and and they tend to be specific and interesting. I mean, with both Jody and Mel. Um, their notes were really good. Um, you know, they were really thoughtful and cinematic and tended to be specific and not just sort of like, well, make it less boring here. They tended to be like, I'm not quite sure that you're, you've gotten to the heart of what this scene is. You know, and one of the first of those is like, you know, you get these notes funnier, and it's like, well, what does that mean? That's so subjective. It's so, but when somebody comes in and goes, I feel like in this scene, we don't see that moment that this character goes with the turn that they need to, that you can really look at and you can think about it and you can try things to try to get there. And, and, um, and I found working with him like with Gary Sinise, you know, he, he thought very deeply about the character and about the story and, you know, he'd asked really good questions and, and it was, it was, it was challenging in the best sense of that word because he would, he would be thinking about the big picture and about the character. And I find that very valuable. And, you know, and Ethan's Hawk's gone on to be a really good director. I thought Seymour was a remarkable film. Um, yeah, I thought it was one of the best documentaries last year. Um, oh yeah, I still need to see that. I know he just really he just good. started in a Jet Baker uh, biopic that I need yeah. to see it too. Well, he's I mean he's so protean. I mean the guy works so much. Yeah, he sure does different things. I mean we actually have something. I'm, I'm hoping will happen. We have a project that we've been trying to do together off and on for a long time, and I'm hoping it's moving back into the on phase. Um, and he seems like he's still interested, which which thrills me no end. Although he'd be playing a a different role now than when we first started many, many years ago because the years have gone by and now he'd be playing perhaps a father and not the son, uh, which is an amazing thing to think of and he's yeah. very old. Um, that sort of happens in uh, Clouds of Sils Maria, the movie that came out yes. last year <laughs> with Juliette Binoche's character. A really interesting movie, too. I really, yeah. you know, I thought that was a terrific film. You know, yeah, I think yeah, about it a lot. So it's a, it's a movie that sort of sticks with me in my mind. Well, it's got very. I mean, that's again that kind of cinema that I love, where it doesn't have easy answers. It asks yeah. some unanswered questions, and it really it, it haunts you. And I think I love films that haunt me. Um, you know, I I'm much less satisfied by something that gives me all the answers, and I can walk out and go, okay, well, where do you want to eat? I like to walk out and go, I have to think about that. I don't even know if I like it or not. Um, 
it's funny, most of the films that are my favorite films of all time, I, I wasn't sure if I liked them in my first viewing because they were too complicated and too messy and, and unclear. Un and so I had to go think about them and go see them again. And, you know, and, and they gradually would evolve into something that, that I would see over and over and over again. But I would say that of my top 25 films, probably 15 were ones that I was like, yeah, I don't know if I like that. I have to see it again. Yeah, that happened with me in Synecdoche, uh, Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman's movie, where I was like... That's why I, st I still haven't seen that. I'm embarrassed. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, I really, and I really, really like Charlie Kaufman, too, so it's really embarrassing. Well, that's a puzzle movie. <laughs> that's definitely uh -huh. one of those movies that you have to see a couple times before it hits you in the right way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what what was it like, and was it intimidating to adapt... Kurt Vonnegut, since he's all about the prose, which is why I'm still not sure if something like Breakfast of Champions could be an entirely successful film. Yes. Well, well, Breakfast of Champions, I do, and, and I and I really like Alan Rudolph as a director, and I, yeah. I and yeah. I, you know, and I think he did a, I think he made a noble effort. Right. But I think Kurt's some of Kurt's later. I mean, to me, Breakfast of Champions is sort of about being a book. I mean, it's sort of the subject of it is You're being right. a book. And so I feel like there's almost no way to translate it and capture what's special about it. Now, again, to just you know, to be clear, I, I did not write the script of Mother Night. That was written by Bob Whitey. Who's oh, right, the, sure. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful old friend. We produced it together. I directed it, and he wrote the script. He's very close. He was very close to Kurt. He's actually just finishing a documentary on on Kurt's life, and you know, the, the, they were very, very close friends, which is how we were able to get the material for no money. Nice. Um, and Bob did a really spectacular job in adapting it. Uh, but but we talked. It's funny. We both were big fans of Kurtz, and he, when we were hanging out and talking about let's, it would be fun to work on something together. And we had the same feeling, which is that if you're going to do Kurt, it, it, in a lot of ways, it makes more sense to do some of the somewhat earlier works because they tended to be a little bit more cinematic and they were less literary in their construction mm -hmm. than their in their um, sort of curlicues and weirdnesses and you know they 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 told stories that you could actually tell they also told stories you could tell um on a modest budget i mean it'd be very hard to do some of the bigger science fictiony ones on the kind of money that we thought we could probably get uh so so he suggested mother night and i went back and reread the book and went yes this is it's contained it's an amazing story it has great themes um interestingly it's less it's less consistently laugh out loud funny and some of Kurt's other stuff it's a little bit more up and down between um, the serious and the uh, and the funny um, you know he hadn't yet gotten to the point where those two things were perfectly seamlessly integrated <coughs> they tended to kind of dance together a little bit more right uh, and I thought Bob did a great I mean it was one of those things where I was at that point just about to go off and I guess I was going to go off and shoot um, Midnight Clear and Bob said, well, I want to take a crack at adapting it. And I was, you know, I was like very probably, I was probably very condescending in my heart of hearts. So like, because Bob had never written anything. I was like, well, sure, you go ahead and write it. And then I'll end up rewriting it is what I was saying to myself. And, you know, I learned a big lesson because I saw his, he sent me his draft and it was remarkable. And, you know, as somebody who had loved Kurt his whole life and also knew him well personally, he just really was able to capture Kurt's voice remarkably, remarkably well. And I think so. We we did some work on the script together, but but it was really editing work. I mean, it was not. I mean, he. I, I take no credit as a writer on that project. I mean, all I did was help get some pages out of it to make it a more manageable length and all that. But but it, and, and even Kurt was a huge fan of the script and was really excited and, and admitted that 
when he read the script, there were, he couldn't remember whether certain things were in the book or whether Rob had invented them. And that seems to be like the nicest compliment you could ever give a screenwriter is as the, the original novelist to say, was that scene in my book or was that scene something <laughs> you came up with? Um, so that was, that, was, that was a wonderful blessing for us both to have Kurt's excitement like that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was just, with Nolte must've been really exciting too. Yes. Um, Nolte was great. Um, it yeah. was, he was remarkable. Um, he brought a passion and he was like working with a much younger actor with all the savvy of an older actor, which I loved. Uh, um, the first day of rehearsal, which we held at his House in Malibu. I mean, he was very all in on the project. He was like, "Yeah, just have ready come up here. We'll rehearse up here. I'll make food." It was just <laughs> no. Awesome. It was really amazing. And you know, we walked in the first day, and there were like these, these, um, you know, chalkboard type things everywhere with like index cards of, uh, you know, the the novel put into chronological order, the novel in the order that's in the book, the the differences between the script and the novel, photographs. Of, Real life playwrights from the era, since he was playing a playwright. You now, what did playwrights in Germany look like? I mean, he'd done so much research and homework along with his assistant that he did a lot of the heavy lifting for us in that area. I mean, we started rehearsal with him having done an insane amount of thinking, and you know, and and Nick at that point was already in his fifties, and it was already it was a huge movie. We started working for a fraction of his normal money, and he could have easily you know phoned it in and still been you know great because he's what so talented. But it was just the opposite. I mean, he plunged in like somebody who's 19 years old getting their first big break, um, which to me was so touching and inspiring. Um, and he was so much fun to work with. I mean, he was just so so full of invention. And, and I mean, he was crazy, but he was crazy in the best possible way. He's crazy like your like, crazy uncle that you like, love to hang out with. Who I mean, like Nick would like would stop everything in the middle of rehearsal to take blood to like to paint, you know prick our fingers and take blood samples and put it on slides and then project it on the wall and say, well, you see there, I didn't see you're you're low on iron there. I, said, I mean, it was nuts, <laughs> but it was wonderful and it wow. led to all sorts of bonding and you know and and we did all sorts of things in rehearsals that were not straightforward and would often be Nick's inventions. You know, one day he just read us Anne Sexton's poetry for like two and a half hours. Um, and because it spoke to him about the character and about the, and it was somehow just this remarkable experience where we all were like bonded by it instead of like, like what the hell are we doing? Um, and he, you know, or another time he, he played us all these tapes of Arthur Godfrey and he said, this is who I want this guy to sound like. Because when in, in the script and in the book, you kind of get the feeling that he's screaming and yelling and sort of a little bit like, like Hitler, you know, he's very kind of, you know, ah, ah, ah. yeah, a lot of exclamation that's, points. That's the cliche. But he said, I don't want to do. That. He said, I want to do that in that one speech, you know, and it's in the film. There's that moment that he finally does open up. Yeah. He said, I like the idea that this guy insinuates himself and he seduces you and he seduces his way into your living room and he's he's avuncular and he's he's you know your friend. He's and 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 that was not something we had ever anticipated. And he played us these tapes of Godfrey and Arthur Godfrey and. It was kind of brilliant, and we went, that's much cooler. And that was typical Nick. He would just come up with this stuff, and it would just add so much to what we were doing. Um, he also really, you know, actors in film tend to fall into two categories, and there's great actors in both. Both Some actors are great film actors, but they don't like the technicality of the medium. It annoys them. It gets away. They don't like to think about the light. They don't like to think about the camera. They, it's, like, it's like, don't bother me with that stuff. And then there are actors who really embrace the medium and enjoy it and are excited by it uh, and kind of know about it. And Nick was that kind of an actor. He, he'd always ask, like, what lens was on the camera. He'd always, and, 
and he nice. really adjust his performance to that. And not only that, he really knew things like lighting. I mean, we would be on a set, and he'd say, you know, if I just step one more step forward, my face is going to fall into half shadow. And then for this scene, just get like the glint of my eye, but you really won't see much else of my face. And we were all like, yeah, that's fucking amazing. That's a professional, man. Um, That's a true professional. uh, And and he enjoyed that. He enjoyed the process. He enjoyed what a camera did, what lights did. In a way, I'm surprised he never directed because he had very much a director's eye. He, he, He had great sense of what, you know, imagery and, and all that. I mean, just, you know, I guess on a personal level, it didn't appeal to him, but he did act like a director. You know, <laughs> and he would think about the, all those other elements that a lot of actors just see as, as flies in the ointment. Um, so I was, I was very grateful for that experience. And then, but the whole cast, I mean, Alan Arkin, John Goodman, uh, Kristen Dunst, Cheryl Lee, Cheryl Lee. I mean, everybody, was, these were all people that were, fabulous in terms of talent, but also wonderful co-workers. And they all respected each other. They all treated me with great deference and respect, which, you know, given the level of years of, of incredible work being done by a lot of those people, they could have seen me as this kid. You know, I could have been like, you know, and, and I never felt that way. I always felt um, respected, let in, shared with a partner. It was, it was uh, an amazing, you know, Really, uh, that and 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 and, and waking the dead were both really peak experiences with kind of emotional adventures, um, because yeah. people that I was working with were so such amazing partners. It seems that way. Watching them again, they feel personal. They feel emotionally resonant. My favorite film of yours is still Waking the Dead. I just think it's criminally underrated. In fact. My friend Bill Ackerman, who also hosts another great podcast, feels it's one of the very best films of that decade. Man. Um, my favorite scene, maybe, in all your films is when Fielding is confessing to his family at dinner, uh, essentially having a breakdown. Mm-hmm. That moment really captures the feeling of loss in a similar way that Peter Weird captured PTSD with Fearless. Um, it's just an interesting and complicated love story. Two great performances. I just, I love this film, and I, I, I felt like should have been on a lot more top 10 lists and Crudup should have been nominated. Uh, it's just, I just get, I get so ex- enamored with talking about this film. Is this, would you say this is your most personal film today? Cause it feels yes. like it. Yes. No, it, that was a very, very personal experience. Um, and a very, uh, in, in the best way. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously Scott Spencer's novel, which I responded to tremendously deeply was all of the inspiration for it, but there are things in that film that are literally right out of my marriage. I mean, I've been with the same woman for 29 years, and there's uh. there's dialogue in that film that's like out of my living room and bedroom, and you know, it's so it 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 it, it had that resonance for me. It's, it, it it was you know, it, yeah, it was deeply deeply personal. When I read the book, it reduced me to a puddle. By by, I was like 10 pages in, hmm. and I was like weeping um, because. I'm lucky enough to have somebody in my life that that I share that kind of incredible bond with, and the overwhelmingness of thinking about what it would be like to suddenly lose that, um, yeah, spoke to me on a, a kind of deep, deep gut level, and was something that I wanted to try to capture on film. Um, and but I knew I needed great actors, and I knew I needed to go very deep with them, and. You know, luckily, not only were, were Billy and Jennifer wildly talented, but they were incredibly brave human beings and incredibly open human beings and were willing to work 
in a very deep way. And we rehearsed for, you know, almost four weeks um, and long rehearsal days. I mean, like as if we were doing a play. I mean, a lot of times in film, rehearsal is a thing that gets pushed to the side. Uh, you say, oh, we're going to rehearse a couple of weeks and you're lucky if it ends up being an hour here, an hour there because you're so busy doing everything else, you know, in terms of location scouting and camera tests and this and and on this film, I just said to everybody, it's one of the reasons that I became a producer on my own movies because I was like, I didn't want to have to have these arguments all the time about, you know, where the resources were going. And I was like, if it costs us a little extra money, I'll, I'll save it somewhere else. But rehearsal time in this movie is crucial because we have to explore what this relationship is. And because the nature of the book and, and the nature of, of my script was that you're jumping around in time like crazy and there's a lot that you don't see on camera. And if we don't explore what all those moments between are, then those scenes won't feel real and rich and emotional the way they need to. Um, so we need to, as a creative team, not only explore and rehearse what's in the movie, but we have to know all the stuff that isn't in the movie. Um, because the, the nature of the story is you're seeing highlights, you're seeing moments. But yeah. if you know what's around those moments, that's not, you know, Billy's breakdown is not going to happen if we don't know everything around that breakdown. If, if, if we as a, a, an actor and director have really done improvisations and explorations and endless discussions about where was he at every step along the way with his emotional arc that he was going through. That's the only thing that allowed that scene to have that power was we, we had created for ourselves a platform to stand on. And that took a lot of time and brave, hard work. And, 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 then, and then him being a goddamn brilliant actor who was willing to go to a very difficult place. And it's funny because that was a tough scene when we shot it. He was, I bet. It took him a while to get there. And he was very, I think, concerned that he wasn't going to get there. But I just knew his talent and that he would. It took us a bunch of takes. Uh, I think the take that's in there is like take seven or eight that we used for almost all of it, uh, where he just got a head of steam rolling. Um, and, and I also, part of one of the things that really worked on that film and worked with him in that scene was, I said, listen, I, I wrote the dialogue. Throw it all out. You know, mess it up. Don't be polite. You know, he came out, you know, Billy comes out of a theater and he's very respectful of the written word, but there, there needed to be a messiness in some of these moments. And sometimes that would really open him up and really free him was when I would say, don't, you can't say this linearly. You have to like scramble your brains and, 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 and forget all the lines and then let whatever comes out, comes out. Um, and that was, you know, it was an incredible thing to, to work with him to get there. Uh, and then I knew we had it, uh, you know, so it took about, like I said, it took a bunch of takes. And then it was like, okay, that's it. We're not going to get it better than that. It can't be. You know, you, he, he gave it everything it needed and, and more than I ever could have, have hoped for. So it, that, that scene was a remarkable, remarkable experience because that's all we shot that day. And for for first few hours, it was like it was that it was that slightly scary thing of are we going to get there? I mean, are are we not going to have? Is this key moment never going to be as powerful as we all thought on the page? And we never rehearsed that moment, and that was quite intentional on my part. We we talked a lot, a lot around it, but I I didn't want to take the freshness out of it. You know, I think with I think emotional peaks can be very very dangerous to rehearse, and I love rehearsal, but I love to rehearse around emotional peaks. I don't like to rehearse the peaks themselves because I think. You want the actor experiencing that somewhat for the first time. You don't want it to be. You don't want an actor trapped in trying to recreate a, a breakdown they had in a rehearsal room. Yeah. Um, so, so we talked about that scene a lot in rehearsals, and we thought about it, and we, you know, we did all sorts of variations on it, but we never actually worked it uh, until that day. And I was very lucky that he was the guy in my movie. What can I say? Um, and uh, it's a special film. It really is. Well, thank you. I, yeah. I, it's very dear to my heart. I, you know, I, I have a very painful memory in that. Uh, you know, I, 
my name isn't on the screenplay, which I find endlessly infuriating to this day hmm. uh, because the credit went to somebody I never met and to who oh, worked, weird. worked on a very different version of the film years earlier for a studio when it had you know the Hollywood happy ending and when Fielding's family wasn't even in this film and when this is radically different version of the same story. Um, but because his script was part of the chain of title and because the Writers Guild rules, even more at that time, they've, they've somewhat changed them, but gave the first writer every sort of benefit of the doubt, which makes tremendous sense, by the way, when it's an original screen. I mean, if somebody comes up with a story, I don't care how much you write it differently, they came up with the story. Mm-hmm. The thing with a novel, he didn't come up with the story. Right. And I said, I found myself like screaming in these union meetings and saying, give Scott Spencer the credit at least, you know, give sure. whatever, but, but nothing that this fellow invented is in the movie. I mean, everything that's in the movie that has any resemblance between the two scripts goes to Scott Spencer. There's nothing that he changed that I then <laughs> used. And in fact, I'd never actually seen his script because it was written for like Columbia Pictures when I was going to be like a $20 million, you know, the way we were moving. Oh, wow. uh, so it's a very strange and painful thing for me that this this film that's full of again dialogue out of out of me and my wife is like credited to someone else. So it's a very weird experience, um, and I'm not alone in having had that. I mean, there are a lot of famous stories of people not getting writing credits and being endlessly angry and furious and quitting the guild. And um, you know, it's it's a weird thing. It's a very strange thing, and it's. You know, I mean, look, there are people also sitting on death row for murders they didn't commit, so I'm not going to, you know, these are very, like, high level, this is like, this should be my worst problem, you know, this is very rich white guy problem, it's like, I didn't get my name on the movie, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, it's, uh... uh you know, you know where the, the dialogue, you know, you know where the, those scenes came from, and that's what counts. Yes. You know, I've seen you quoted as saying that the movie industry now functions more as an industry rather than as an art form. Is this kind of why I mean I maybe I'm bridging just two thoughts here but some storytellers like yourself to some degree have transitioned more into television because there's an already established environment you're telling a prolonged storyline that a director can be excited to contribute to and I'm assuming there's some freedom there to some degree well, but it's, it's you're fun. not getting that when you it, put it's it together a movie TV is a mix of things. I mean, yes, it is where the good material is gone. There's no question that the 90% of the most interesting stuff being done in the filmed medium or in the cinematic medium is being done for TV. Mm-hmm. It's where all the good writers are. It's where it's, it's, you know, it's, where, it's a place where, where at a wonderful moment, who knows how long it will last. But, yes, generally there's always been this very unhealthy marriage of business, you know, business and art in movies that were really difficult. Right now – Ironically, what sells on TV to a certain extent is quality. What sells on TV to a certain extent is challenging an audience. You know, things like Breaking Bad, yeah. uh, things like The Wire, things like you know Battlestar Galactica, things like The Leftovers, things like Fargo. Things these are these are pretty esoteric, interesting, difficult, complicated, poetically written, surrealist things. I mean, these are you know. And right now, Mr. Robot, whatever, is an endless list of things that are not standard storytelling, not boring, not the cliches. Not, and right now is that rare special moment where that's actually commercial, where that actually brings money in. Uh, I'm working with some young writers on development on some projects in TV, and I find myself like a broken record saying, be bold because being bold is not only going to make this a better show artistically, it's what's going to get it on the air. Now, you know, if you pull your punches, 
not only is it going to be the last great show, people aren't going to make it because people are smart enough to see that the bold things are what are getting done and what are winning awards and getting attention and doing all those things that all those people want. Uh, and that's a very rare moment, and it probably won't last forever. And, and the and art and commerce will go their separate ways again in television. It'll be very sad. But right now, that's a very exciting thing. Now, as a filmmaker, it's a very mixed blessing because as a, a filmmaker, you're not really the auteur in TV. I mean, sure. Or should you be? When I go work on Fargo or Leftovers, that's not my show. It's Damon's show. It's Noah Hawley's show. It's um, because they're the voices, though. They've created it. They're also the one creating this huge arc of a whole season. Uh, they're also creating a huge arc of three or four or five or six or seven seasons. So they are playing the role that a director more traditionally plays when you make a film, um, especially a kind of a more independent film or a more artistic film. So it's a bittersweet thing because I'm getting to work on this amazing stuff with people I admire and, and on material that's so exciting. But in a way, I am less the architect and more the, the contractor building the house. Uh, it's an incredible house. I'm getting yeah. Frank Lloyd Rice on this, right in his house. So I'm not going to complain too much. But, you know, you can't walk in. As a director on a TV show, you can't do episode five and walk in and go, well, I'm going to bring my style to this. I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. Because not only would they smack you, which they'd have every right to do, but, I mean, it, it would be really inappropriate. There's already a, a, an artistic blueprint, a DNA that exists that you have to honor. Now, what's cool when you work on a lot of the best shows is they want you to still bring your vision into that and, and find a way to make the two meet. Uh, which is a fun and interesting challenge. But you have to uh, really very assiduously stick to the core of what makes that show special because otherwise you'll have an episode that just will not fit. It will not be part of the larger whole. And you may make some brilliant choices, but if they don't, if they stick out like sore thumbs and if people at home are going, well, that's weird, the show doesn't usually feel like that, you're not doing anybody any favors. Um, so it is, it is a more of a craft and less of an art than directing a feature film uh, or a personal feature film. Okay, because yeah. I'm trying to get my talents to to match and mesh with somebody else's vision. Uh, now that's very exciting, and it can you know when you're working on great stuff and when when you're working with people you really respect. Um, and it's why I've tried to be very picky about what TV I do uh, and to only work with people who I find exciting on material I find exciting. Um, and, and on material that I feel like I really get. I mean, sometimes people will come to me and say, will you do my show? And, and I end up passing and they'll be pissed or they'll feel bad. And it's not that I don't, sometimes it's not that I don't think it's a great show, but if I look at it and go, it's a, I, I like watching this, but I don't get it on some visceral, visceral level. Like I don't know how to tell this story. Then I don't know that they want me for that, you know, but that's hard for them in that moment to see. So they feel like I'm, I'm rejecting them. Like I don't like it. And it's like, no, I, I just don't think I'm the person who's going to do the best possible job for you. Um, I'll watch it. I just don't know that I should be directing it. But I try to pick things that as a filmmaker that I look at and go, I get that. Uh, I understand what you're going for. I understand that voice, that feeling. Uh, and that's, and that, yes, it's wonderfully exciting. But I still very much want to get back to doing my own films because I miss, I miss, being, I miss being the one that puts the cast together, that puts the crew together, that, right. that creates the whole piece uh, as opposed to the person who comes in and executes the vision. Um, Are there so, any film projects that you're trying to get off the ground? Or I'm assuming because there's always been rumblings of different adaptations that you wanted to pursue, or the Chris Nolan collaboration. Is there is there something that you're positive is going to be turned into a film, and you can work on that? 
at some point. Well, there are things that there there right now. I mean, there's there's always the nature of being in this business is you've always got to have so many balls in the air because it's so hard to get any one thing to happen. <laughs> so if you have five things that you're trying to make happen, maybe one of them does. Um, but there are two film projects that are longtime favorites of mine, and that I you know I, I went through this period of working like crazy in TV and basically having no energy for anything else. And realizing that it was very exciting and lucrative and fun and interesting, but that I was really missing doing my stuff. Yeah. So I kind of went back and re-looked at all my stuff and went, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to keep working in TV, I'm not going to have as much time to try to pursue a million things. So what are the things that really speak to me? And there were two projects that that I continued to love as much as when I first met them. It's like staying in love with somebody in a relationship. You know, sometimes you fall out of love and you move on, and other times you stay in love. And there was a, a, a script, uh, a book called The Muse Asylum. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. And uh, that's something I've been involved with for 12 years, maybe 13 years. And, <laughs> and you know, it had come close to happening but but didn't. And then, again, got put aside when I got all caught up in TV. And similarly, a book called Billy Dead, which was a project that Ethan Hawke had brought me as an actor and said, oh. let's do this together. And I thought it was amazing. And both of the projects have a similar history in that – both of them we were, were projects that we try to get the piece of people involved, try to get financed in unusual ways that looked very promising and then just didn't pan out. Uh, and that took us years to go down routes that just didn't work, uh, which, you know, it was a worthwhile experiment, but it was very frustrating in both cases because, you know, by the third or fourth year, you're into a particular attempt to try to raise money in a, a particular way. And it, if it doesn't happen, it's like you've kind of missed a lot of other opportunities along the way. To, to get that project made. So both of them, in a way, are kind of new to the world because they most they spent most of their lives uh, in fairly insular situations where we were trying to get the money from a single source. Or, you know, in one case, it was somebody trying to put together a huge overall deal for their company, and we were going to be, like, one of the first projects of that overall deal, um, and that deal just never happened. In the other case, in the case of, of Billy Dead, it was... We got involved with these terrific people who were just kind of ahead of their time. It was a, a bunch of guys who uh, called, called themselves Civilian Pictures. And their idea was to try to do what now would be crowdfunding, but before crowdfunding had really taken off. Ah, Kickstarter. They were, they yeah. were to do it like they, their idea, though, was to do it as a literally as a public offering on NASDAQ and to take huh. it and in film and to say, you want, you want to be part of a film? Invest in a film. You know, put $100 a share or whatever into this movie. You'll get all sorts of access to dailies and things online. We'll have like you know private websites. Um, your name will be on the end credits. Um, so a lot of the things that now are part of the Kickstarter world. Um, but their idea, because at, at that point the web was not what it is now, and, and the idea was to do it as a, as, a, as a stock offering. And we were very honest in the perspective. It's like you know it's very possible you will not make money. It's very possible you won't even make your money back. Um, here's the risk. Here's the upside. Here's the. But that process took literally years. I mean, just trying to do a filing, it was so, especially with something that, that had never been done before. And with the government involvement, you know, where it all had to be approved by the Security Exchange Commission, and mm. they didn't know what to make of it, and they were freaked out by the whole thing. And so that was literally about a five year process, maybe a six year process. And ultimately, we never got approved. We, we ultimately never got the SEC to say, yes, you can go do it on the term. I mean, what, what finally happened after many, 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 many twists and turns was the SEC essentially said, you can only sell this to institutions, that it's too risky to, for individual investors. And, of course, that killed the whole idea. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. Because, like, like, you know, 
So Goldman Sachs wasn't interested in putting in money into a weird, dark <laughs> little indie movie that was going to play at Sundance. Right. Uh, that was that was never the concept. Um, and and we our argument was: look, we are completely transparent here. We we talk about the budget of the film. We talk about how difficult it is to make that money back and how difficult it is to make a profit. And we say, don't put your money into this if you want to get rich. Put your money in if you want to support something special and artistic. Yes, if you're lucky, maybe you'll see your money and maybe you'll see a profit. But it's but at the end of the day, they wouldn't let us do what now people do on Kickstarter all the time. In fact, on Kickstarter, you don't even, there's no pretense of getting your money back. It's like, just give me your money and I'll give you some, some, you know, some, some tickets or some, you know. You know it, but these guys were trying that way back and it was really too bad that it just never happened. But by the time it fell apart, I mean, Ethan was already saying, you know, I'm getting too old for this anyway. I, I can't play this character anymore. And he was right. And so cut to whatever it is now, six, seven years later. Um, I you know I I dug the project out. I went. I still love this, and I got in contact with Ethan and said, "Is this something that you'd be interested in?" He goes, "Well, I got a lot on my plate, but you know, would it make any sense if I wanted to play the father?" And I was like, yeah, "Actually, that would be amazing." So I I don't know if he's going to sign on and do it. And you know, it, these things are always they're never real till they're real. Sure, be amazing, and it would be kind of wonderful if thing came full circle and. Happened now with him, you know. It really is a real life class of Sills Mariner. Where like now we've it's all come come around, and we've got we find some wonderful wonderful young actor to play the part he was going to play, and you know he plays a little old. He'd have to play a little older than he really is, but I think he could actually make sense in the role. So, um, and well, I, sh- I sure hope it happens, man. It, it it's been too long since we've gotten a Keith Gordon feature film. Well, thank so. you. Well, I I would be really really happy to have it happen. So. Um, you know, the great thing is is that the odds have gotten better than they have been in a while because the fact you can make film, uh, you know, digitally cuts your costs on small films yeah, immensely. Yeah, so. uh, When we were talking about Billy Dead back, whatever it was, eight, ten years ago, we were thinking we had at least three or we probably more like four or five million dollars. Now we're talking about we could probably make it for a million dollars if we had to. And that change is remarkable because it, 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 it makes the possibilities so much bigger in terms of where you can go for financing and how you can possibly tell a yeah, story. Yeah, you don't have to go through the powers that be. You can do what Charlie Kaufman did with Anomalisa and go straight to Kickstarter yeah. <laughs> if you have to. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and it, it's, it's a wonderful thing that's happened for independent movies is that. The, the difficult thing that's happened for independent movies is getting them distributed, getting them seen, right. getting yeah. them to be have a life is very, very hard right now. Uh, and not every story can be told that way. I mean, Billy Dead is you know set in a small town. It's very contained. It makes much more sense for that. Muse Asylum is set in New York City. There's more locations. There's more characters. So it can be done small, and it can be done smaller than we had been talking about it, again, years ago. But it's never going to be an under-a-million-dollar movie if unless I completely change my vision of what the story is. Um, so, you know, that's the other thing is that some stories fit neatly in that new paradigm and others are like, yeah, this is still, we still got to be on a train and we still got to be, and we still need a crowd of extras. And we still, you know, sometimes you're just like, yeah, okay, that's, those things are going to cost some money. Well, Keith, I know we're just about out of time. You have to catch a plane soon, but it, it means so much to me that you took some time out to talk with me about your incredible body of work. It really does. I, I love seeing your name pop up on my favorite shows because I know that episode will be carried by your confidence behind the camera. And like I said, I just hope there are more films to come from you in the future because I will be there opening night without a doubt. Well, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and 
I, I know I've sort of talked her ear off, but I guess that's the way it's. Oh going. no, I I don't mind that at all. That's that's what the show's all about. I'm yeah. all about active listening more than just like blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You asked great questions. Oh, and, thanks, man. And, that means a lot. I'm glad to be a part of it, and I hope I hope your listeners find it interesting. I found it really interesting, and you know, let's stay in touch because you know, absolutely, sharing great. We share a mutual love of cinema that, that you know, uh, I, I, am a, I am a film fan even more than a filmmaker. So uh, I will be very curious to hear who you're talking to and to uh, stay in touch with you as things go on. That means a lot to hear. All right, man. And like I said, you should come back on. We'll, we'll talk about a director in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely. I would be delighted. Great, Keith. Well, take care and good luck with the leftovers. All right, my friend. Take All right, care. Talk keep to in you touch. Soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again so much for listening to this bonus episode of the Directors Club. Visit directorsclubpodcast.com, the Now Playing Network, over at nowplayingnetwork.net. And uh, again, very special thanks to our guest, the great Keith Gordon. Take care, everyone. Talk to you soon. I'm with the father, he's out in the boat, riding the water, riding. See